This is the Strength Anger Podcast, part of the Berserker Strength Radio Network, featuring APF Illinois State Chairman Eric Stone, as well as AAPF AWPC Powerlifter Robert Bain. We are coming at you from 2XL Powerlifting in Lombard, Illinois, and you can find this podcast online on anchor.fm. All right, Mr. Bain, here we are, episode 64. Nintendo 64? Uh, that might be my favorite console. I don't Ooh. know. It's, it's a tie between that and the SNES. S-N-E-S, I should say. Favorite game on both those consoles? Um, Super Mario World, probably on Very SNES. Um, on Nintendo 64, it's tough. Um, obviously, a big Mario 64 uh, fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mario Kart 64 is just a classic sleepover game. Oh, yeah. And Goldeneye, obviously a classic as well. Interesting. So I was uh, Turtles in Time on the SNES. Yes, that's great. Great uh, game. Also an okay-ish movie if you're stoned. Um, but then <laughs> on the N64, Super Smash Brothers, the original. Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny because I bought the original, like, on a whim, mm-hmm. at, you know, kind of like at the end of life in the Nintendo 64, and it was before it got, like, huge, you know, huge. Cult following. And I was like, what is this game? Dude, I got, like, we would play, I mean, literally for days on end, like, with the only break, it would be for, like, two-hour naps. <laughs> it was, I mean, I loved it. It was great. Like, we, we basically played that, Street Fighter, and uh, Tekken Tag. Those are the games that we played. Yeah, we definitely had Street Fighter Two Turbo. I don't. I don't think we had the the third one you said there. So, so Tekken is uh, PlayStation now, but it was uh, it was a big arcade game. Uh, I believe Konami owned the original rights to it, but it was one of the original Polygon games. Okay. And then it just continued to evolve. has has some of the best graphics in all of fighting games, and is one of my favorite ones outside of Mortal Kombat. Uh, awesome, awesome, very fun. Oh, game. you know what? I think Donkey Kong Country Ooh, uh, is up there yes. as well. Great soundtrack to that too, actually. Yeah, that that and might be top for uh, the, Super Nintendo. Now I'm thinking of Rare, the the company Rare, Killer Instinct. I, I've never played that. Heard it's very good though. Very, very good, and also a great soundtrack. Anyway, yeah. um, let's uh, tie up some loose ends. Mm-hmm. Um, today we're going to talk about handling lifters at a meet. Yeah, um, but some loose ends. Um, I think we got some good feedback. People enjoyed the. A-U-A. Yeah, we, um, got, we got some good feedback. Folks enjoyed these stories as well, especially my story from the rental car. Yeah, very aggressive, Mr. Bain. You know, it's... Uh, I had to turn that off. I was listening to it in the car with my children there, and I was like, oh, I remember this story. I'm going to have to, <laughs> go have to turn that off. Yeah, yeah, I used some, some pretty impressive language. And uh, as I mentioned on last uh, episode, my mother listens to the podcast, and I definitely got a phone call from my mom after that drought. Wow. <laughs> She's like, she didn't care that I was saying those things and did that. She's like, your daughter was there. I'm like, yeah, it'd be that way sometimes. Um, yeah, we can't do AUAs all the time, but I kind of like that format. We'll, we'll throw in another one in maybe uh, you know a few months. Yeah. Um, good break in the action. Definitely. Um, you. It sounds like you found uh, the Road to the Arnold DVD on YouTube. Yeah, so I was uh, actually sent that by uh, by a listener, uh, Jason. Thank you very much. Really appreciate that. Uh, he has been affiliated and and uh, engaged with the podcast for uh, basically since we started. So uh, appreciate his uh, his listenership. And he, I said, listened, sent it right over. And so uh, I, I appreciate that he sent it. And I'm sitting there watching the first five minutes. I'm like, I want to fall asleep right now. Uh, yeah, it's very boring. I like the the intro is kind of cheesy, but you know, not mm-hmm. too bad. After that, it's just literally like dudes benching on a bench, and not even yeah. solely Ryan Canelli, like other yeah. just random dudes. Yeah. So I mean, 
I would have been mad if I would have paid like 30 bucks for oh, that DVD. So heated, but it was YouTube, so it was fine. But I mostly appreciated that uh, I got to reconnect with Jason and yeah. chat with him a little yeah. bit. So uh, I've been getting lots of pings about the Slanger shirts and getting those into the APF. And I'm like, cool. appreciate the opinions. It's great. Uh, uh, one, uh, I, I, I'm indifferent to them. I just see them as like an, an overload tool for now. Uh, and two, as a reminder, <clears throat> I am not a state chairman, nor a meet director, nor am I one of the executive committee members. Yeah, unfortunately, well, I don't know if you think fortunately or unfortunately, you do not have a vote. No, I mean, I you, you, you can state your opinion, of course. Sure. And, and I, I will say I am indifferent to the shirts, generally speaking, but or the apparatus. I'm not going to call it a shirt anymore. It's an apparatus uh, because it does not fit the definition as far as the APF and the WPC goes of a bench shirt. Uh, last thing I actually forgot to put in our notes, we do have a follow-up from our boy at Deadlift Frankenstein. Oh, okay. Regarding eggs. And oh, okay. Excellent. Yeah, from he, Sunrise Community Center no, or a, a retirement home? Sunrise Retirement Community. They uh, like Sunny soft- Side Up Retirement Community? <laughs> actually, soft-boiled eggs are the best way to cook eggs. If cooked ahead of time, they're great for a quick, high-protein snack. Soft-boiled, I find, is also easier on the gums. Very important when you're that age. However, peeling them can be difficult for these arthritic hands, so best to have the nurse peel them and put them in a container ahead of time. Uh, you tagged know what? at Strength Anger, tagged at 2XL Powerlifting, tagged at Bane316, hashtag fuck you both, hashtag love and miss you, hashtag is this Lombard meat. You know what's <laughs> interesting is I actually really like soft-boiled eggs, and I have not had those in a really long time. I don't think I've ever had soft-boiled. I've had a hard-boiled, yes, but I don't think I've ever had soft-boiled. You know, as a kid, you know, my dad, he lived in Germany Mm -hmm. for about three years. When he was right out of school, he worked for Army Audit. And apparently soft-boiled eggs are, you know, like a big thing in Europe as part of their breakfast. must be especially in Germany. And he actually had these little stands Mm -hmm. that, you know, you hold the egg up on, and there's almost like a a cracker for that you'd use with crab. racist. (laughs) <laughs> uh, almost like the thing that you'd use with crabs or with oh, lobster. The, the claw breaker. Yeah. yeah, almost like that, but it had ridges. And so you would you know, basically like clip the top of the uh, eggshell and mm-hmm. then pull that off. and Or you could use a knife and cut it off. And then if it's soft-boiled well, I mean, you have like these little tiny spoons and you, yeah. you eat it right out of there. I mean, it's been a long time since I had it. I really like soft-boiled eggs. Yeah. By, by the way, if you ever want to see that in action, if you watch the show on Netflix, uh, Jupiter's Legacy, one of the characters loves soft-boiled eggs. It really, it's actually kind of funny. Specifically, uh, what he enjoys with the softboiled eggs. Highly recommend watching that show. What's the show? Jupiter's Legacy, and it's on what? It's on Netflix. Oh, I don't have. You, you don't have. It's. It is basically the Avengers if they actually had consequences, like from the beginning. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's it's fun. I I, I enjoyed it okay. uh, at least season one. So anyway. Other than that, Mr. Bain, what is going on? Uh, got the showdown of the storm coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, when you wrote, you wrote SATs, I thought yep. we were talking about the SATs. Like no, is, no. Is Lily or somebody taking the SAT? Um, though, to be fair, Austin will be taking the SAT this fall. Uh, we, I guess, update on Austin for those who don't know. He actually has gotten some of his hours in, and he will be getting his driver's license this summer, which I just still cannot fathom that I will have a licensed driver. Uh, with a full-time job during the summer, and in September, he's going to be 18 years old. Oh, boy. It's fucking crazy. No, Sats is the showdown of the storm in Daytona Beach. Very excited to be down there. Uh, I'll be flying in Wednesday to Orlando, drive over. Uh, I'll be helping a few folks as far as finish off their weight cuts uh, on Thursday and Friday, and then Saturday and Sunday, I'll be spotting, hyping, and doing the uh, the platform management things. Very excited for that. And then next weekend, this is nothing to do with powerlifting, is uh, Dadchler Party 2.0. Uh, I, I will not share the whole story, but I will tell you 
that is a Vegas hack is telling various establishments you're there for a dadchelor party because somebody's having a kid. All I'm going to leave it at, and we're very excited to do that again here in Chicago this weekend. Is somebody actually having a kid, or is that just yes. a line? Yes, one, one of the guys that is and actually the same guy we did, Dadshire Party 1.0. Uh, he and his uh, wife are having a second child. Uh, he's flying in from L.A. The rest of us all live here in Chicago, so uh, we'll be living it up in uh, downtown since, you know, Supreme Leader Pritzker has opened things up again. Right, right, right. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, no problem. Stone, what's going on with you? Well, um, I you know... I always say uh, stay tuned and, and don't, I won't guarantee anything, but I am trying to work on a couple different live streaming options other than just, you know, an iPad or iPhone, mm-hmm. you know, put up and, you know, the camera running. Um, I am working. I, I actually talked to our buddy, Michael Fahey of... At Westside Film. Yeah, uh, at uh, Westside vs. the World fame. Mm-hmm. Um, and he F- gave follow me... Follow-up being filmed currently. Yeah, and he gave me some good kind of low-cost options to take kind of what we have mm-hmm. and put it together wonderful and see if we can put up something you know a little bit more than just just you know the actual video uh, you know try to include the scoreboard mm-hmm. try to include the lights i mean all those things are there it's just a matter of compiling them on one image so um, i would never guarantee anything mm-hmm. but i may beta test that at the women's empowerment meet since Alpha i test, sir. <laughs> since i will not be uh, directly working that meet there you go um so we'll see Awesome. Um, the AWPC Worlds uh, entry form and online registration is live. So if you lifted an AAPF Nationals, well, you can only go. Only three spots left? Yeah, there's actually plenty of spots left. <laughs> um, I know that Amy will set out uh, official invitations, but um, if you are a U.S. lifter or even Canadian lifter, I know uh, Bruce uh, McIntyre is working on that, mm-hmm. you can uh, enter directly through our online portal. What about the uh, British teams? Uh, they would have to go directly through Emma. Ah, fantastic. They have to go through Emma, and then Emma will uh, send me uh, you know, their uh, entries all at once. So that's right. typically how the WPC countries are supposed to do it. They work directly with their WPC affiliate president, mm-hmm. um, and they, you know, they collect all the entry fees and entry forms or at least information, and then they send it to me uh, just in one batch as opposed to entering individually. That's so that they can verify everyone in there with – Obviously, our lifters will know, and then Canadian lifters, um, especially with what's going on up there, won't yeah. be a huge amount of lifters, um, but it sounds like there'll be, you know, a handful. Will the more than zero. be attending this year? I, no. Uh, we don't have any affiliation with them anymore. Ah, that's you. another – that's a stone story. That's go, a good story. That's a stone story to go on for another day. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, Mr. Bain – Listen, you fake news. You fake news. What is fake news, Mr. Bain? Gas shortages are fake fucking news. So for those who don't know, there was a hack to a uh, gas pipeline here in the U.S. I don't even know where it was. Don't care. Uh, uh, south, southeastern part of the U.S. Sure. And people went full toilet paper on this. They are hoarding gas. And the, the now, to be fair, the videos that, and the pictures that I've seen of this are absolutely hysterical. People trying to fill their truck beds. By the way, the truck bed doesn't have a back. And they're trying to fill it with gasoline. Wow. Unbelievable. Like you just, you cannot make this shit up. And so it's absolutely hysterical. But what's so funny is so many of these are coming from like central and South Florida, which this get, this pipeline doesn't even service. Well, so it has nothing to do with it. I mean, I suppose there is a trickle down effect um, in other areas, but I mean, yes. I mean, the problem is when you artificially just jack up demand mm-hmm. because you're afraid you know, it, it wouldn't matter if the supply had been affected or not. It's going to affect the supply. The, the panic porn has worked. So, moving on. Stone, what is? Fake news. Fake, fake news. 
Fake news. Yeah, I mean, automated phone systems are fake news. I am so, I mean, like, here's what really bothers me. When I hit, like, 25 different buttons, like, is this is this why you're calling? And of that choice, is this why you're calling? And what about this? And it's like, you press 25 buttons, mm-hmm. and then the first thing when you actually talk to somebody, they say, oh, can you tell me what's going on? I'm like, well, why did I press all these buttons? Go, go fuck yourself, San Diego. That's what's going on. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, well, you have to transfer you to another, another department for that. Yeah. It's like, well, well, why did I go through that whole thing? And You should have just connected me they to just, somebody. They just want to see if you have the perseverance. Well, and what happened recently, uh, I'm, I've been without a dishwasher for a month, which, gosh damn, that sucks. Same. <laughs> and so we had, a, we had Sears come out two times. They could not figure out what was wrong with it. I'm like, it is literally leaking. One, one of the many reasons they're going out of business. Uh, yes. They could not figure out why it wasn't leaking. And he was very nice, but, you know, couldn't figure it out twice. And so we had another company come out, and they said what was wrong. And they said, well, we have to order the part. It's like, Okay. Three weeks goes by, no part. Jackie calls. They say, don't, don't call back. Don't call us. We'll, we'll, we'll call you when it comes out or when it comes in. And I call. I'm on hold for, I would say, a sol- after hitting about 25 buttons, I'm on hold for a solid 15 minutes. Jesus. When I get to the end, they say, we, we can't process your call. Goodbye. Get fucked. Click. So I, that, that that drives me crazy. When or if they do the pickup and then immediately hang up. Why did I? Why did I stay on hold for fifteen minutes? Oh my god! If, you, me nuts. if you're not answering the phone, why even have a phone line? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give them. I've now messaged them through their website because they don't have an email. I've sent them a Facebook message. I might actually call and say that I want to make a new appointment because oh, there you go. Uh, then I might actually talk to somebody, and that will be my last. And then it's funny because on the little sheet of paper they gave us when they came, they said, please leave us a five-star review, and I will definitely not be leaving them a five-star review. Can you leave a negative five-star? Yeah, jeez. Unbelievable. Well, Well, hey, in better news, let's talk about some something we're bringing back because we haven't had it for a couple weeks, Stone Stories. This is a good one, and I have to write these down when I remember them because they just kind of come to me when we're talking. You, Um, You should just make like the voice memos on your phone. Right. I don't keep my phone on me all the time, so I have to write them down. <laughs> Whatever. Um, so I'm pretty sure this comes from the Illinois Raw Power Challenge in 2011. So oh. literally 10 years ago. Um, a coach from Iowa, your, your neck of the woods, Mr. Bain. That's although, my wife's neck of the woods. I just lived there for a while. Okay. Um, he, he was there with a harem of 40-year-old divorcee females. Oh, my God. I mean, I would say anywhere between 8 to 12 um, that he was coaching. And how old is this guy? He's probably, at that time, early to mid-30s. Wow. Um, you know, younger than most of the females he was coaching, I would, I would guess. He was fairly new to powerlifting. He had done one or two of our meets, you know, kind of in that, like, late, 20, well, late 2000s, early 2010s, you know, raw lifters that was, you know, really starting to, to grow in the sport. Um, so he's got this harem of females. Mm-hmm. I remember them sitting, like, Indian-style on the floor – Waiting to lift. Jesus. And he was not lifting in the meet. He was, was like a whole like sister wives like powerlifting team or what? Yeah, I guess. Uh, he was uh, not lifting in the meet, but he was in his singlet. So he was just walking around the meet in his singlet. And then I remember specifically him literally doing like a workout in the warm-up room in his singlet, including like overhead presses. That's why I knew he wasn't lifting in the meat. What like, the fuck? He was just doing squats. He was doing overhead press. And I'm like, what is going on? Um, he was a Mark Ripito follower. Well, then in that case, we definitely was a fucking idiot. Um, his harem had some of the worst form 
just terrible form. Um, of course, they were looking down. Um, but I mean, well, it, I mean, do you want to make eye contact when your form's that shitty? <laughs> Nick Detman was our head judge. He was a very funny man. Yes, he is. And you know, so he's right there. You know, feet from them. The way it was set up at Right Fit, it was like a long, skinnier facility, and we. Essentially, instead of putting the platform like at the front or back, we had it kind of in the middle facing toward the turf. So Mm -hmm. it was a wide but not very long uh, seating area. So Mm -hmm. the head judge was fairly close to the lifters. So he was right there. And, you know, they're looking down. Their chest chest is forward. Their knees are in. And after the meet, Detman was like, you know, what is this guy coaching these girls to do knees in chest forward jeepers and so from then on when we really want to joke you know we yell like knees in chest forward look down <laughs> get on your toes <laughs> uh, so <laughs> it just I, I, it's right up there with back 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 nipples nipples to me nipples to me yeah i mean a- any cue you can think of which we'll talk about today any yeah, cues well. you can think of uh, we were thinking like is he literally telling them the opposite of that jeepers that's so, funny so that's our uh, our Iowa Iowa. How do you say that? Iowa. No, but like if you're from Iowa, an Iowan, an Iowan. Okay, our Iowan judge. Yeah. From a particular city of four cities, um, which the Quad uh, Cities fucking sucks. And if you're from the Quad Cities, you listen to this. Sorry, your fucking area sucks balls. Yeah, I had two separate two separate coaches from that area, kind of from the same team that separated. Um, both very bad experiences with. Very terrible. Um, let's move on, Mr. Bain, to yeah. our to our hot topic. At first, I was like, I can't think of a hot topic. Then I thought, and, well, and I was looking even like through like the meme pages, like what what's like you know starting the memes right now. There's really nothing yeah. that jumped out well, until well, uh, the CDC has now uh, changed course and said that individuals who have received at least one of the vaccine shots, or maybe both, I can't remember exactly what it is. Fully vaccinated. Okay, individuals whom are fully vaccinated and two weeks after they do not have to wear a mask anymore in public. We've earned the right. Okay. And, and the question is, what effect will this have on gyms and meats? So my take on this, it's going to be a long time, and here's why. And when I say that, I mean for the general public to come back and not be weirded out. Let's be real here. If you listen to this podcast, you don't wear a fucking mask. Sorry, Mom. I know you don't wear it either, so. And that's fine. We, I would say that you and I are, are probably averse to wearing them. But if you want to wear them, wear them. You're an individual. You're an adult. Do your thing. Don't care. But what's interesting to me is when the CDC announced this, my wife happened to have a book club, you know, virtual book club, uh, a couple of days later. So, you know, it was yesterday morning or this morning. And the, the majority of people on there were talking about how they just can't reinsert themselves into society for at least six to nine months because – one, we certainly haven't done enough. And I just, I remember distinctly one woman saying, I see people outside and I just go, how can you go out? How can you not live in fear? And I come running into the kitchen and my wife puts herself on mute, slams, <laughs> slams the laptop down. And she says, I swear to God, if you say anything, <laughs> left it there. And I'm like, ah, you sound pretty serious about that, babe. So I'm not going to say anything, but. Uh, yeah, how do we not live in fear? Because we have a fucking immune system. T-cells, listen to the Fred Clear interview. It's how literally how the body works. But yeah, I think it's going to be a long time because the panic porn has worked on a lot of people. Well, uh, I think it will take some time, um, but it's it, they're going to, like, this is, this is the beginning of the end. Like, it, it is. This is the white flag that we're kind of, we're starting to end the pandemic. And 
I, I, I've said this often. I'm, I'm waiting for Joe Biden to go, mission accomplished. We got the orange van out. <laughs> I know we, we I hear from people like every week we say, well, we, we try to talk about politics. But I, I will just say this and I will leave it at that. It is coincidental that all of a sudden we're eliminating the mask uh, guidance mm-hmm. mandate when in the same week there has been unrest in the Middle East, there's been very high inflation and very poor jobs numbers. Mm-hmm. It is coincidental. Um, S- simply coincidental. Couldn't possibly be related in the least. You know, as far as gyms and meats, I, I don't know any way. I, I personally don't want to verify anybody's vaccinations. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see a card. I don't want to see your medical records, nor should I. And so there's really going to be no way. Wait, for, wait you respect people's privacy? <laughs> there's, I don't want to know any of that. I don't want to get sued. Um, there's no way that gyms and or meats are going to be able to verify any of that. So somebody could just say, I've had the vaccine and I don't have to wear a mask. And at a certain point, how can anybody say any different? Now, I personally will continue for a time to respect private businesses' requests of if, if I'm required to wear a mask when I walk into a restaurant or when I go into a grocery store, for a time, I will continue to honor that request because just like a private business could require, you know, no shoes, no shirt, no service. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have the same. No fun there. You can, yeah, you, <laughs> you can have the same with masks, I think, for a time. There will be a day and there will be a time when I will be done with that. It's mm-hmm. not today. It's not tomorrow. Um, but it's I, four I, weeks from Thursday. Uh, I, I think the end has, the beginning of the end has begun. It's the end of the pandemic as we know it. Um, let's move on, Mr. Bain, to the... <laughs> Have we had to hear my singing voice? To yeah. the Clusa throwback. Throwback, throwback, throwback. A big throwback here today. Going a way, way back machine. We're going all the way back to July 1986. Yes. And we've got, uh, on the cover of this Powerlifting USA... Hold, hold, hold on, sir. Oh, What I, were you doing in July 1986? Well, I'll, I'll let you start with that, I suppose. Sure. So what I was doing, we have a great Bane story here. It's not, not as cool as a stone story, but a great Bane story here. So I would have been four, and I have I do not recall actually doing this, but I've heard the story enough from my parents that it essentially is like a memory that I have now. Uh, I'm sure people can relate to that. You hear about something when you're very young, and you, you just kind of remember it. But we were at a store, uh, Safeway, I believe, is where we were at. It's the grocery store we used to shop at when I lived in Northern Virginia. And I was always a very talkative child. Imagine that. And very outgoing and would talk to people all the time. And so we're standing in line. And this is when we didn't have social distance. So people could be close to us. It was no big deal. And this lady's talking to me, and I told her, I know the rules of my preschool. So, oh, that's so cute. Can you tell me the rules? Said, no problem. We don't run, we don't hit, and we don't say fuck. My mom, from what I'm told, turned beet red, literally picked me up and walked out, like left the full cart and just walked us out of the store because <laughs> she was so embarrassed. I have now learned more context to this story that I guess we had a kid who's had a really, really foul mouth, and he would say, fuck, all the time. And we would be told, we don't run, we don't hit, and we don't say that word. And I'm like, well, I can say the word, but I'm not supposed to say it in school, so it's fine. So that is the, a, a long-running joke in my, uh, my household with my parents. We don't run, we don't hit, and we don't say fuck. <laughs> but I say fuck a lot. So, still, what were you doing? Um, I don't have any as funny of a story from that age. Uh, I would have been three, I guess, in preschool. Nice. Um, in 1986, I was born in 83. Uh, but what was going on in the world? Just a in, little guy. In July 1986, mm-hmm. um, 
I think we've already done the 1986 top TV shows and movies. I believe so. So we'll do some just uh, some specific events mm-hmm. from July. Um, July 3rd, President Ronald Reagan presides over the relighting of the renovated Statue of Liberty. Nice. July 15th, the All-Star Game MVP in Major League Baseball is Roger Clemens. Is this uh, pre-tuna or post-tuna? Uh, that was definitely pre-tuna. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Sure, um, sure. He had a long career. He really so. did. I mean, really, really. Did. I mean, he was into the '90s and what? still pitching really well. He had a lot of recovery help. Yeah, I mean, just for recovery though. Yeah, just no, no problem. Um, <laughs> on the cover, we had 68-year-old Roy Manson. Nice. Who was Mason? Pa- sir. Oh, okay, Mason. Uh, Roy Mason, who was uh, pulling 562 at 68. That is That's an impressive deadlift. A baller number right there. Um, at uh, this was at uh, USPF Master Nationals. Uh, Roy did a 303 squat, a 110-pound bench, and a 562-pound deadlift at 181s, winning him. Is that more than you deadlift? <laughs> Go fuck yourself, man. <laughs> uh, earning him a second-place finish in the Masters 60-69 to 69 category. <laughs> nice. um, it looked like Roy competed from about 1981 and all the way up until 1995 wow. when he was 76. Go, Roy. His best lifts were pretty close to what he did at that meet. He had done a 314 squat, a mm-hmm. 110 bench, and a that 562 deadlift. Uh, mostly single ply, although it was single ply gear probably of the day. Competed mostly at 165 and 181. Nice. Um, I think we were to assume he's passed on at this point. I mean, I guess that's plausible. Um, I mean, he was... He would have been 76 in 1995, so yeah, that'd so make him now. 86 in 05, 96 in 15. Eh, it's pretty close. Yeah. Um, we had an advertisement for many books. Larry Pacifico had a lot of advertisement. Larry mm-hmm. Pacifico was all over this magazine. He really had quite like the, the business running yeah. um, in the mid-'80s. Um, but he had uh, his, Was this before or after he got hurt? Uh, that I'm not sure of. It had to be pretty close to when he yeah. got hurt. I want to say it was the late-'80s when he got hurt. Uh, we had books uh, for sale from Fred Hatfield, Larry Pacifico himself, Bill Kazmoyer, and others. Nice. Of note was a book by Fred Hatfield titled Anabolic Steroids, What Kind and How Many? Wow. Just get right to it. And uh, I looked that up. Uh, it was like a, only like a 30-page little manual. Mm-hmm. Um, it was listed on Amazon, but not for sale. Gotcha. I didn't check on eBay to see if there's any versions on there. Um there was the results from the 1986 APF Nationals, and this was May 10th and 11th in Philadelphia. Um, it, it's not really clear, like, which Nationals this was. The article seemed to indicate it was the first APF Nationals. Interesting. But I, I don't know if it was intended to be APF Junior Nationals, and I don't mean junior the age group, but the vernacular comes from Olympic lifting, where Senior Nationals is... The higher level meet and junior nationals is the lower level meet for mm-hmm. open division lifters. Um, the results only had weight classes, no divisions. Interesting. The previous month's Powerlifting USA had APF women's national results, which was March, March 8th and 9th in Canton, Ohio, mm-hmm. run by one David Jeffrey. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll come back to that. Yep. Um, and there was an advertisement for APF senior nationals June 28th and 29th in Dayton, Ohio. Um, run by Larry Pacifico, and it had a full-color back cover ad for wow. that meet. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if this was supposed to be Junior Nationals. Um, the write-up was somewhat critical of, quote, looser judging. Mm. Um, it made uh, 
a reference to Larry Pacifico's recent issue of the Power Hotline. And I looked that up, and it apparently was like a twice-monthly newsletter. It sounds like it was kind of like the end, like of its day, like the the internet gossip blog, you know, the the message board, mm-hmm. the you know Instagram post. Yeah, I would call it the power line. Yeah, I mean, I would call that. Yeah, the power hotline. Yeah. Um, it, it, it looked. I'm, I'm guessing it was something a little less. Because I think power hotline. I'm thinking of like one nine hundred Jim Bro. Like something. that's kind of what I was thinking, but it sounded like it was a newsletter, yeah. and I don't know if it was like you know maybe like you know Power Lifting USA was the nice glossy color paper, mm-hmm. and then the power hotline was maybe just you know newsprint like, or like something a, a little yeah thicker. like a stapled together yeah uh, something. But uh, that, you know that's you need to have is like another like revenue source here at Two XL is the power hotline. People can call in with questions about lifting. Just yeah. do do a nine hundred number so it's charged by the minute. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was very popular with wrestling in the nineties. Yeah, wrestling and other things. Yeah, yes, definitely. I don't know if they do one nine hundred numbers anymore. If you don't know, uh, if for some of our younger lifter, yeah. listeners, used like one eight hundred is a toll free, but there mm-hmm. also used to be a whole group of one nine hundred numbers where you would call they, it. And, they were told, and they were yeah, they would actually bill to your phone bill, your mm-hmm. your landline bill, mm-hmm. and it was popular with. You know, like gossip. You know, like yep. you would call that up for, you know, WCW, uh, Mean Gene would have the hotline. And yep. He would tell you, you know, secret stuff that was going on. Or, you know, WWF had a hotline. and Just you know, rec- recordings of, like, what the storyline is going to be. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and there was also adult 1-909 uh, lines, which were fairly popular. So I have a funny story about that. Okay. Not me, uh, but one of my really good friends growing oh, up. A friend. Yes. So, sorry, Joey, if you ever listen to this. Joey Zellabor. Um, <laughs> I'll just throw it out there. It was not me. But I was at his house. And he's like, hey, watch this. He calls a 900 number. And it just goes right into the recording of, you know, what we assume is someone in the throes of ecstasy. And then he just leaves it. Like, he just leaves the receiver off the hook. And it just, it, the sound is just going in the background as we go about playing regular Nintendo, like, whatever. Yikes. So, I don't think anything of this. Whatever. His mom was gone, I find out later, for like four days, and he left the receiver off the hook the entire time, and their bill was like $700, just some insane number, where normally your phone bill is like 50 bucks, if that. Yeah, maybe 25 at that time. Yeah, at that time. But yeah, hilarious. I I remember how much trouble he got in, and as you do when you're that age, because we were probably eight, nine He's like, well, Robert was there, so he definitely had played a part. And like, I did not touch that fucking phone. <laughs> not a goddamn chance I touched that. So uh, I don't believe I've seen any record of this power hotline. Later, Powerlifting USA would do like a, a monthly or I think it was actually a bi-monthly like VHS tape of the similar type of, you know, kind of like gossip, what's going on in powerlifting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the author, you know, of this article on the 86 APF National said, you know, he thinks there's a need for two organizations, not necessarily three. He kind of talks about how, you know, there probably is a need for an organization that does not drug test because it is in the sport, a.k.a. the APF. Mm-hmm. Um, and it probably is a need for an organization with, with drug testing. And he talks about the ADFPA. He talks about the USPF, which were the major players at mm-hmm. that time. Um, it is interesting that David Jeffrey, um, he was the meet director of APF Women's Nationals. Mm-hmm. He apparently was at this meet as well. And, yes, this is the same at David Jeffrey that was the USPF president in 1997, mm-hmm. going back to our USA, USAPL becoming the IPF affiliate episode. Solid episode. You should definitely go back and listen yeah. to that. 
Um, there was a message from the USPF president, Dr. Conrad Cotter. Doctor. And you can go back to our Franz versus USPF IPF episode um, where we you know, talk about him quite a bit. Apparently, and this actually connects back to our, our IPF USAPL episode, um, th- this was a response, his letter, Dr. Conrad Cotter's mm-hmm. uh, letter was a response to Jan Todd. Um, her and her, her husband, Terry Todd, apparently had um, a, a write-up, an article in uh, Iron Man magazine, which okay. was another big you know, kind of strength magazine at the time, mm-hmm. and claimed, Jan Todd claimed, that the USPF was forced to do drug testing at Women's Nationals due to two, quote, ultimatums from the IPF. Interesting. Todd also claims that the Women's Committee had requested to create a separate drug-free federation. I believe we talked about this in our History of Drug Testing episode Mm -hmm. where Judy Gedney, Jan Todd, a couple others on the Women's Committee had considered just forming their own women's organization at one point. Um, Cotter, however... Separate but equal. Yeah. Cotter, however denies any ultimatum from the IPF and said that drug testing was voted in two years prior. Yeah, I mean, so, the IPF would never issue ultimatums. Right. Uh, I, I think this just kind of shows that, yes, even all the way back in 86, there has always been this kind of push and pull between the USPF and the IPF when it comes to drug testing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it definitely has deep roots, and it seemed maybe like, wow, the USPF, the founding organization, is kicked out of the IPF. But if you go back and look at the history, it certainly seems as though there had been some friction there from quite some time. Well, I think what's, what's interesting is, like, within the United States, like, folks are just more open about the fact that they happen to, to use. Whereas in many European and other countries that are IPF affiliates, it's super secretive if it's being done. I mean, the one exception to me is, like, Russia, where it's like, of course we use drugs. It's fine. It's, it's vitamins. So, you know, I appreciate the fact that people are just, they're they're honest about it and the fact that, like, yeah, it happens in our sport. It is what it is. Uh, but, yeah, it's one of those, like, the because of this friction, I think it now has created this great divide when it comes to drug testing and, and non-testing, at, at least for newer lifters. Sure. Um, we have the top 100 list for the 132 lifters from May 1985 mm-hmm. to April 1986. C. Larson, top of the squat with a 551-pound squat. Um, a few lifters down in the fifth spot is Lamar Gant, a very famous lifter with a 510-pound squat. Top of the bench is A. Covington with a 358-pound bench. Mm-hmm. Top of the deadlift, and I, why I mentioned him in the squat, is that Lamar Gant with, oh, yeah. with a 650-pound deadlift. It's insane. And second place is 599 pounds, so he's 50 pounds ahead of the closest competition. And then it really starts to drop down. Um, at, you know, 11th place is 507. Wow. So that 150 pounds almost jump in 10 places. Wow. Um, Lamar Gant, unsurprisingly, is top of the total with 1,460-pound total at... 132. And that is our uh, Palooza throwback. Throwback. So let's head into our topic at hand for the day, mm-hmm. handling lifters at a meet. Yeah, I think this is a, it's a fun topic. I think it's an important one, too. Like, if you're, if you're going to be around the sport for a while, at some point you, you're going to get asked more than likely, but you should 
you know, try to handle someone at a meet. I think this is one of those things that just it gives you a deeper appreciation of what goes on both behind the scenes and also with lifters at a meet. Uh, highly recommend it. I don't know when he posted it, but Brian Hill posted a piece on Instagram. I think it actually made it into the uh, gear book that David Kershaw uh, wrote. I think that the elements of it did. Yeah, yes. but it's specifically like how to be a good handler and also like what all is needed for a handling crew. This is focused on multiply. We'll get into that here in a bit, but that's a great companion piece to this, uh, this particular topic and might actually be a great reason to bring Brian back on the show. Cause we haven't talked to him in a while. Sure. Yeah, no, it's an interesting topic. He had some good thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I would add as well, I was re listening to our Laura Phelps episode to get some mm-hmm. programming ideas. And she had made around the time we recorded that episode, a post about like, you know, encouraging people to learn how to handle other lifters, to mm-hmm. learn how to wrap knees, to learn how to help set shirts, to learn how to help set suits, to learn how to, you know, help call depth yep. and, you know, help out essentially. Um, and, and hers was an instructional. It was more of like a, you know, a, a motivational like a call to action type. Yeah, thing. Exactly. And, and Leah Reichman actually just yesterday posted something very similar to that. Uh, yeah. I'll, uh, when we get to the end here, I'll, I'll read next. I think it's a great uh, synopsis of a lot of things we're going to talk about here. Yeah. So let's start with what does it actually mean to handle a lifter mm-hmm. at a meet? Uh, what are we talking about? Um, is handling a lifter the same as coaching? I would say it, 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 it depends. A, a coach can be a handler, but a coach doesn't necessarily a handler's not always hand- a coach. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a handler doesn't necessarily need to be your coach. A handler will do some elements of coaching, mm-hmm. um, but I wouldn't say they're exactly the same. Like, a coach can be a handler. A handler can be a coach, uh, but, you know, it's kind of like uh, you could have somebody that is handling you that isn't necessarily your coach. I would use the example of my brother, Ken Stone, mm-hmm. who is a great handler. I mean, he, he's one of the best, I would say, that we have. He's very attentive. Mm-hmm. He's great at wrapping knees. He knows how to set gear. Um, he's very calm, uh, which is great for a handler. You don't need somebody that's very up high or low. But Ken would be the first to tell Th- you. That's why I'm a very bad handler. Ken would be the first to tell you, like, he's not a coach. <laughs> he can help you call numbers, but he's, he's not going to coach you. He could give you advice mm-hmm. um, versus, you know, myself. When I handle lifters, I often am also their coach. Right. Um, well, I think a good example of the, the opposite of that is like Laura at the women's program. She had no less than 10 lifters lifting during that, uh, those two days. And those individuals had specific handlers who were, you know, wrapping knees, setting gear, et cetera. Then Laura's who's, you know, calling depth, coaching, you know, do, giving them cues, all that type of stuff. Yeah. Sometimes she was handling some of those elements. Some of them, yes. She was maybe wrapping some knees, doing some, mm-hmm. you know, gear setting, doing some handoffs, but uh, you're correct that all of those lifters probably each individually had one person that's all their job was to help them, and then Laura was kind of the, you know, the, the, the supervisor. Ar- the architect, yeah. Sure. Um, you know, handling raw lifters versus equipped lifters, um, and then let's break that even down even further. Classic raw lifters, which at least the APF would define as lifters with knee wraps, mm-hmm. um, typically. I, You know, in the APF, someone with knee sleeves would be classic but we'll we'll assume them the same as raw raw all caps lifters um i would say raw lifters are relatively easier compared to classic and uh, equipped lifters Mm -hmm. um classic lifters are going to be calling me easy yeah i I would say relative to an equipped lifter oh yeah lifting yeah yeah, uh classic lifters will will be closer in terms to equipped lifters um but definitely not 
quite the same level. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say a handler is recommended for classic. Um, it's not always needed for raw. I think it helps. I it's, think it's, it's good. It's nice to have. It's good. Um, I would recommend having somebody with you, but it's not, you know, we'll talk about what you're doing with raw, mm-hmm. but you, you can get it done. Um, I, I, again, probably still suboptimal. Um, I would say a handler is essentially mandatory for equip lifting. It, uh, if it's not mandatory, it is like I could not recommend it any higher. Yeah. I mean, if not, if you're multiply, you might need more than one handler. Right. You're a handler. I need a handler. Go check that post by Brian Hill. Yes. So what are the jobs of a handler? So mm-hmm. now we've defined what they are. It's somebody that's, you know, helping somebody at a meet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what are they actually doing? Um, I would say, you know, here's a list of some of the things that they're doing. And, and we'll go through in depth kind of breaking those down. Um, helping call or fully calling numbers. And that's kind of where you get the crossover of a mm-hmm. coach versus a handler. Right. Um, I have a, a form that I give out at meets and that I, I use with our lifters, and I call it just a meet record. One side, I print a kilo chart. The other side, I've got um, you know just a simple Word document breaking down where you can write down somebody's warm-ups, where you can write down their attempts. And then the opposite side, you can kind of circle and make notes of ranges of where you'd like to, to choose attempts. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very helpful to have. Uh, and I need that personally because we can't all be like our buddy – Coach Rudy Rudiger, mm-hmm. who literally would Rudy, remember, Rudy. who would literally remember all the numbers of his high school lifters. He'd have 15 lifters. He would know all of their openers, second, third attempts for all three lifts, just off the top of his head. Wow. Uh, they would all come to weigh-ins and say, "Oh, I don't know my numbers. You got to wait till Rudy gets here." He would get there, and he would we would hand him like a set of like 12 cards, mm-hmm. and he would write down openers for all 12 lifters, all three lifts. Wow. And then would call all their numbers at the meet as well. That's crazy. Um, most cannot do that. I would need that written down ahead of time. That's yeah, um, phenomenal. A big job, which we'll talk about, is helping a lifter warm up uh, properly on time. Mm-hmm. Um, helping equip lifters get in and setting gear. So getting into gear, one element of it, and then setting gear, yet another element. Um, setting briefs and a suit on the squat. Setting the bench shirt on a bench. Um, maybe briefs, but often just a suit in the deadlift. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the LUP, the Leviathan Ultra Pro from Enzer with the Ultra. lace, with the lace up. Um, that's probably going to be the most complicated to set up. Mm-hmm. Um, a full canvas is probably going to be the hardest to get off. Yes. Um, I mean, it might require up to three to four people to get people out of a canvas squat suit. Um, I've seen it before. I've experienced. Very hard, very difficult. Uh, wrapping knees in the squat for warm ups and attempts. Mm-hmm. Uh, putting Velcro straps on on the suit if it's a Velcro suit, or just putting on straps in the in the bullshit single ply division, mm-hmm. um, chalking the back of a lifter and handing them chalk that, that they may need. As you can see all over my my back right now. Yep, centering a lifter on the bar on squats, mm-hmm. um, calling depth on the squat. Very important multiply. Uh, giving proper cues to the lifter outside of depth calls. Ch- <laughs> Head down, knees yes, in, yeah. chest knees forward. In, knees in, chest forward, get on your toes. <laughs> round your back, round your back. Uh, wrapping wrists, sometimes on the bench. I, I've never had anybody do that, but mm-hmm. it, sometimes something uh, people need. Yeah. Um, handing handing off to a lifter or leading a three-human handoff. Yeah, the, none of this Zer shit. Three Zer handoff. Fuck all that. Uh Calling a lifter down on the bench, similar to calling depth on the squat in mm-hmm. shirted benching. Nipples, nipples, nipples. Uh Helping set straps on the deadlift suit, mm-hmm. um, helping put baby powder 
on thighs and maybe on the back of the arms on the deadlift. You know, one of the things you, we, we forgot to put in here is I think a responsibility of the handlers, making sure the baby powder doesn't get in the fucking chalk box. Um, yeah, I mean, that should be self-evident, I suppose. Um, it should be, shouldn't it? But hey. Not all white powder is equal. Correct. They do all matter, but not all white powders are equal. Um, for raw lifters, I would say the most important elements, and I'm talking all raw. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not talking classic raw. For, for raw lifters, probably the most important aspect of a handler is helping with warm-up timing, um, helping set them for each lift, mm-hmm. and giving handoffs, and then calling numbers. Mm-hmm. So when I'm helping a, just a raw, raw lifter, those are kind of the main things. You know, you're really a facilitator. You're looking at timing. Um, you're making sure they're set on the squat. Um, you're handing off to them on the bench, and you're calling numbers throughout the day or helping them call their numbers. Right. Um, when you go to classic raw, now you're adding the timing of wrapping knees into the equation. That would be the, the major difference between raw mm-hmm. and classic raw. Um, so those are the jobs of a handler. And, and I'm not listing all of them. We'll go through things a little bit more in depth. But those are, as I think through the day, those are kind of the major items of what a handler is doing. Um, and again, there's some crossover between a coach and a handler here. You know, calling numbers is something typically a coach will do. Um, Cueing somebody is typically something a coach will do. Uh, but, again, you could have somebody that's merely handling those items mm-hmm. and then a handler, which is more handling the logistics and physicality of handling. Um, you know, one element of this is handling a lifter in training leading up to a meet. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say especially if somebody's going to handle you at a meet, um, when it comes to a geared lifter, you should – train with that individual right um if not all the time at least semi-regularly um trying to you know on the whim have somebody call your depth that you know hasn't seen you in training is going to be challenging they may not know the pace of your descent they may not know what you look like when you get close to depth. they may not even know how you like your depth being called you know whether sure. it's back 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 perfect or yeah. down, down, down 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 up. down some people do a three two knees one. in knees in knees in some people do a three two one up Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important to establish that rapport between the lifter and handler. Um, and what are the things you're going to learn in training? You're, you're going to learn how does the lifter like their gear set? You know, mm-hmm. How do they physically need to get into their gear? You know, where do they like you to pull on the, on the bench shirt? Mm-hmm. Um, how do they like their knees wrapped? You know, do they like it top down? Do they like it bottom up? Yep. Do they like a crisscross? Um, how tight do they like it? Um, Another important aspect, which we'll talk about soon with timing, is how long does it actually take them to get into their gear? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're Russell Fox on the Multiply Powerlifting Group, um, it takes you apparently 45 minutes to get in your briefs, and it's still not set. Which I can appreciate that with the first time I put on a pair of overkill briefs that were not built for me, but that's because they didn't fit. Like, that's just what it came down to. They well, just did not fit. Well, and a part of that is the first time you put on a pair of briefs in general – it's just, it's so new. It's, it's weird. so new, and then also the first pair, the first time you put on a new pair of briefs, mm-hmm. they're going to be tighter. They haven't been broken in yet. That's why I don't recommend putting on a new piece of gear at a meet. hundred uh, percent. So one thing I will put as a caveat for all this: there is some, there are some workarounds you can have with this. So a good example. I know you have some examples in here as well. Uh, the weekend that we were at the women's program, and I will keep bringing that up, but it, it was an important one. Uh, also happened to be a meet in New Hampshire where uh, our buddy Juan El Saver Champion uh, was also competing. Now, normally, uh, John and I train together quite a bit. I, I know many of these things that you're talking about here, what it looks like, what he, you know, what looks good, what looks uh, bad. And 
originally the plan was I was going to go and handle him. And obviously I could not because I'd already committed to Laura. The meet had been pushed a couple times, and I said, okay, we can't do that. However, we do have some options with uh, our buddy Stan uh, Rodriguez out there in Massachusetts. He's only about an hour and a half away from the meet. He was already planning on going. So what Stan and I did is uh, two things. He and John had a phone call, and then he and I had a, uh, I think it was a FaceTime or a Zoom, something like that, where we walked through all these things that had to do with John. And so he was given notes. And then he went and, you know, the nice thing is that in John's case, he posts a significant amount of his training. And so he was able to go back and review some of that. And then, you know, with the information I gave him, you know, kind of have a good idea of what John was going to look like on meet day. Uh, also helped that John's coach, Anthony Alvaro, was also there, but he was competing, so we couldn't necessarily count on him to do that. Sure. Um, you know, I, I would say an experienced handler could probably jump in with a lifter. And, and I would say Stan probably is an yeah. experienced. I would consider him an experienced handler. Yeah, he's he's been handling, uh, I don't know if that's, is that his wife or is just his uh, girlfriend? Just significant Bri- other. Brianna, yeah. Yeah, Brianna. And, and others as well. Yeah, he's handled lifters before. So an experienced handler is probably more apt to be able to jump in and help somebody they don't know um, versus if you're training somebody to be your handler, I wouldn't say, you know, a, a novice is a good choice no, for that that's, type of thing. As you would say, suboptimal. Yeah. Um, you know, what is what is needed to help get the lifter warm up? How many warms do they need? Mm-hmm. How long does that take? When we start talk, talking about timing, that's going to be important. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the typical uh, what does the lifter typically look like? Um, do they always just look slow or does their, you know, first attempt uh, Jen Gimmel, who I've handled at many meets, often reminds me that for whatever reason, that meets her opening deadlift often just looks slow for whatever mm-hmm. reason. And sure. then said, don't base it on that unless it looks absolutely terrible. Um, so it is important to know how somebody looks, what their bar speed is typical. Mm-hmm. If you're expecting somebody who just doesn't lift fast to be fast and calling their numbers, you know, you wouldn't know that if you hadn't trained with them. Right. Um, and, and, and if the handler is not the lifter's coach, um, as you talked about, I think there is a a need to communicate with the coach, especially when it comes to numbers, either at the meet or, you know, if it's somebody that does a distance programming, you know, talk to them ahead of time and see, you know, based on what they've done, what what does the coach think the handler should and lifter should think about calling those numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go into timing because I think this, as far as a handler is concerned, is plausibly the most important job that they have. Especially on squats. Yeah, it's very important that the handler um, keeps the lifter on track. That's probably their number one job is just, you know, in a nutshell, keep the lifter on track. Uh, You know, the first is that the handler needs to make sure that warm-ups and attempts are timed properly. So how long does it take to warm up for each lift? And, And here's some things that I would think about um, as far as like when I'm timing a lifter for warmups, what flight is the lifter in? Are they in A, B, C, D? Mm-hmm. If they're in A, I can base my warmup timing just based on the, the projected start time of the meet. Right. If they're in a subsequent flight, then I need to base my warmup based around those previous flights. Mm-hmm. How big are those other flights? Are they 10 lifters or are they 20 lifters? What is the content of those previous flights? Are they women? Are they raw? Are they equipped? Are they heavy? Mm -hmm. Um, Typically, here's kind of my rules of thumb. Female flights go quicker than male flights. Mm -hmm. Uh, Raw goes quicker than equipped. And as a subcategory, 
regular raw is going to go quicker than classic raw. Right. Lighter weight lifters are going to go quicker than heavyweight lifters. So I usually say a and smaller flights will go quicker than bigger flights. I mean that's self evident. Mm-hmm. Um, flights with vast changes in weights will go slower than you typically anticipate because there's large changes of weights. Like if for whatever reason you had you know a flight with. Well, like, well, like the rest of the pieces where you go from literally the, the kid bar all the way up to 1,000 pounds. Right. And it wasn't that big of a flight, but it took, you know, 15, 20 minutes because we're going from literally a toy bar yes. to Barzi and Vizieri's 9 to 1,000-pound bench. Right. So if there had been two flights and there had been somebody after, they would see, well, sure, it's only 15, 16 lifters, but the vast changes in weights are going to slow that flight down. Um, so... You know, if I go back to men, women, raw, equipped, light, heavyweight. So a male-equipped heavyweight flight is going to go the slowest. Yes. A small, raw, raw female flight is going to go very quick. Mm-hmm. And, and and I will throw one other caveat. If you have a general idea of the ages, if you have a small, raw, raw, teen and junior female flight, it's going to go super fast. And then on the other end, sometimes when you get into the older masters lifters who, mm-hmm. you know, won't be lifting quite as much, similarly could also go quicker. Not as quick as teen juniors. Those are the fastest ones. Yeah, especially teenagers. Yes. Um, Dive bomb everything. I would say that, you know, like your 20, 30-something-year-old raw females are also going to go fairly quick. Oh, yeah, they're going to be quick. You're, you're more beginner lifters. Um, so... Those are things you have to take into account when you're timing your lifter's flight mm-hmm. If you're as the handler. Um, where is the lifter in the flight? Yeah. Are they at the beginning or at the end? If they're at the beginning of the flight, I might need to time their warm-ups to allow them that extra five or ten minutes before the flight even starts. Mm-hmm. If they're at the end, you might even want to time it to where their last warm-up occurs right as the flight is beginning. Now, similarly to how I have to look at the previous flight, I also then have to look at the flight that that lifter is in. If it's a short flight, then I probably don't want to do that. I probably want to get done, even if they're at the end of the flight, allow an extra five or ten minutes rest. Um, How much warm-up equipment is there in the warm-up room? Um, That's a huge thing to look at. I mean, you know, you and I have been to warm-up rooms like AAPF Nationals, where warm-up room is fine. There's two of everything in there. So there's not a ton of warm-up equipment. There's enough. It was adequate. Um, it was good, but it, there's not, you know, like at 2XL, we have literally three power racks, two, sometimes three monoliths in the warm-up room. Right. Um, there's five or six benches. So there's... I, I've also been to meets where the mono in the warm-up room, quote-unquote, which is literally the, directly behind the competition platform, breaks, and they, everyone has to warm up on the competition mono. Yeah, that's suboptimal. Is uh, doesn't even begin to Put, talk puts about it lightly. Yeah, yeah, puts it lightly there. So you know, yeah, look at what the warm up equipment is. I mean, clearly, if there's not as much warm up equipment, because and it's a big flight. Mm-hmm. So let's say you're in a flight of twenty, and there's two monoliths. You should plan on your warm ups taking a little bit longer because there's more people to rotate in. Right, and especially when it, this, I think this is the most important with squats for geared lifters because they're just. More stuff to get ready. It's the beginning of the day. There's usually more gear to put on. You've got the added uh, complications of wrapping knees. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in general, just a little bit more complicated. Um, I would always aim towards getting the light warm-ups done right away and quickly. You know, get it done early and then worry about your, your heavier warm-ups 
you know, as you work in with other lifters. Uh, don't base your warm-ups on what the other lifters are doing. Mm-hmm. Always, as a handler, have a plan and stick to that plan. Know what you need to do for your lifter and don't worry about what everyone else is doing. I, this is not an exaggeration. This is not quite a stone story, but it's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was helping handle uh, Georgie not on the gram at mm-hmm. AAPF Nationals. I think mainly just helping call numbers, um, helping him warm up. Um, he had a lot of handlers, probably more than he yeah, needed. He had a whole squad. He had a whole people, a squad of people there. But um, I got there early, and uh, I think he said he was in the he was in flight A and starting at nine o'clock. And so he said he was going to get down there about seven thirty. And so I got down there a little after seven thirty. Um, went and grabbed some coffee for Jack and I. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was already a lifter down there who had gotten there about seven. And by the time George got there at 7.30, it appeared he was already done with his warm-ups. What and, the fuck? And he was already in his squat suit. And George said his last warm-up, which, by the way, was at 7.30 for a 9 o'clock start, didn't look that solid. Yikes. And so if you're, you know, basing what other lifters are doing, uh, assume they probably don't know what they're doing and assume right. you know what you're doing if you, you know, have, have followed, you know, best practices. Um, especially with geared lifters, then you have to start to, to think about how long does it take to put on gear and get into gear and the warmups needed to get that gear on properly. Mm-hmm. So I'll give an example. Um, at AAPF Nationals, my wife Jackie and Stace Mula um, were both geared lifters, and they were both in flight C. There was three, I would say, particularly small flights uh, outside of Jackie, Stacy, and a couple others, mostly raw. And I know that, especially Stacy, who was opening a little bit heavier, you know, she had to get up to some pretty heavy warm-ups. Mm-hmm. And Jackie as well. I mean, she was working um, by her third attempt into the mid-400s. So I knew that both of them had a decent number of warm-ups. They both had to get briefs on. They both had to get their, their canvas squat suits laced up. They both needed to get their knees wrapped for warm-ups. Mm-hmm. And because the previous two flights were uh, Special Olympians and raw females, I knew that those, and they were like 10, 11, maybe 12 lifters. Right. Those were, those flights were going to move quickly. Mm-hmm. And so I had Jackie and Stacy start their warmups during flight A and start, you know, even when flight A was starting to take the bar before the meet started, take the bar, do kind of your basic warmups versus typically I would have lifters start their warmups around the time the, the previous flight begins. So it, let's say that, you know, Jackie and Stacy in flight C, uh, under normal circumstances, I would have them start their warm-ups around when, when flight B begins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they would do their warm-ups during the duration of flight B. In this case, I knew flight B was going to be quick and wasn't going to provide them enough time. So we had to back that warm-up up into flight A, warm-up a little bit during, during flight A, finish warm-ups during flight B while they're getting their gear on. Mm-hmm. Um, in my opinion, it's always better to be warmed up a little bit early rather than a little bit late. Now, I've had lifters at meets where say like, hey, what flight am I in? And of course, it's always listed. Right. And, you know, they're in flight C and they're already done warming up before the meet begins. That, that would be definitely warmed up too early. I mean, yes. th- there is a sweet spot of timing um, I would say ideally you want to get done around, you know, let's say you're in flight A, you know, five, ten minutes to rest. Mm-hmm. Again, depending on when you're in the flight. Um, if you're in a previous flight or in a subsequent flight, when the previous flight is getting around middle to the to the end of third attempts. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and, and that's when I would say uh, it's important to have that that scoreboard in the back that uh, that you know computer program where where you can watch the flights. Right. That's where you really need to watch the pace of the previous flights, and don't base warm up timing on time. Don't assume unless. In, in England, they did it where they, they set flights at, like, really specific times. Yeah. Most of the time, most meets will just roll from one flight into the next. Um, I have done it, like, Britain a couple times. Uh, last year's pressing the pieces when we had two flights mm-hmm. um, because I knew you had guys like Barzine lifting and other big lifters. Um, we, we said, okay, no matter how long the first flight is going to take, the second flight isn't going to start until at least 45 minutes later. So. Right occasionally we will do that. But otherwise, I would base warm-up timing of my lifters based on how the previous flight is going. Um, okay, hey, we need to get our, our light warm-ups done when the previous flight is on first attempts. Okay, we need to start getting our gear and get you know our moderate warm-up attempts during second attempts. All right, during third attempts, right around the middle, let's do our final warm-ups. Right. And that is how I would base that. Not on time, but based on how that flight is going. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this is probably true of when you're lifting in the meet yourself or, uh, you know, even when you're just back there helping. You have to be proactive in the warm-up area. You can't assume that someone's going to be like, hey, do you need to work in here? No, you just no. have Assume no one cares. No one gives a fuck about you back and, there. And, and to be fair, they probably don't yeah it's it, not bad things why would they yeah it's just not their problem really i right. mean it's just it's <laughs> you you are not their monkey in that circus right and it's always kind of important to just talk to people and communicate and yeah. and be proactive and say hey is somebody about to take this weight and oh someone over there's rapping um when we're talking about squats that's particularly important because you need to say okay who around here needs to take two places on the bar oh yep. bay needs to take it eric needs to take it you know, Joe Blow needs to take it. All right, after you three, can I take two plates quarter? Sure. Yep. So when Joe blows up, I'm going to start wrapping my knees, and then, hey, put a quarter on there and, you know, wrap the knees and jump it's, in there. It's, it's really important, if there are multiple monos especially, to determine, like, who some of the, the heavier squatters and some of the lighter ones are. Try to separate those. This, this is just I've seen warm room etiquette. If you're going to have somebody, if you're handling somebody who's a lighter weight squatter, Try to get them in there fairly quick. They're going to be early in the flight anyway. So try to get, get them in there and then have others working around them. And then just t- say, my person's next, my person's next, my person's next. Yeah. If there's any reason that somebody else should go before them, it should be because they are before them in the order. And even then, it's like, oh, if you're trying to jump in, then you, you can go fuck yourself, San Diego. Yeah, there is some etiquette there, but you you have to be nice but but firm and you know and, and advocate. If you're a handler, you have to advocate for your lifter. Yeah, don't, um, don't let them worry about that because they're worried about enough shit. Exactly. You, 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 your job as the handler should be to communicate with them and figure out what they need to do to warm up and then tell them mm-hmm. when to jump in there and go. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, in general, in the warm-up room, uh, yeah, there is some etiquette involved there, but it, there's nobody back there running the warm-up room. So no. it's not like it, on the platform. There's, there's not an awesome platform manager. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have heard of some meets that have had some officials slash extra spotter loaders back in the warm-up area. It, 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 usually what happens is, like, at APF Nationals, Team Stone had quite a few lifters there. So the individuals who were not lifting usually were trying to help spot load, mm-hmm. run the monolift. Yep. Ask people who wanted to go. Usually there'll be some individuals like that that will help. But, again, as the handler, you can't assume that. And, and also as the lifter, don't assume that. Don't assume there's going to be people that are going to just automatically decide to help you. Try to talk a little bit. 
Yes. Yeah, exactly. And again, worry about what you and your lifter need to do. You know, don't worry about that somebody else looks like they're taking a max single like an hour before the flight starts. Yeah. And also, again, thinking of this as far as like not assuming people are just going to come help you. Because it would be really terrible for you to be at a meet, maybe even like a big money meet. And you get hurt on your last form up because you decided to walk out of a mono with no spotters and you blew your quad tendon with 800 pounds on your back. Yeah, I mean. That would be really terrible. And that is one thing that I would say um, that when even as a lifter, if you only have a handler with you, if you need if you're taking a heavy warm up that you're fairly confident, but you're not like a thousand percent confident. You know, just yell out, can I have some spotters? Mm-hmm. Almost always, there'll be a couple people around right. that would be happy to jump in and help spot you. Um, and, and along that same token, Mr. Bain, um, again, I, I've mentioned this, but that is where, as a handler, you do need to have your lifter get their light warm-ups out of the way early. Yes. You know, if there's somebody that takes the empty bar, which I recommend, do that early. You know, you're not going to get cold in right. 10 minutes. No. Um if you are, you need to change the way you the, train. The, the, to the, the timing gets more and more important as you get closer and closer to that opener. Yeah, and it shouldn't be, well, it only takes me 10 minutes to warm up. So 10 minutes before your flight's going to start, I'm just going to, hey, can we strip it down to the empty bar? Well, no, no because we've already get fucked. We've already gone up to three and four plates. Right. So, And if you're doing a lighter weight, you're going to be earlier in the flight anyways. So you should get those warm-ups done sooner. Exactly. Um, when we get to squat attempts... Um, and again, squat warm-ups, but it's less important when, you know, you're just doing a warm-up. That's where you just kind of communicate who's going, when can my lifter jump in, and then wrap their knees when, you know, some, the, the person previous to them is lifting. Um, when we start to get to squat attempts, I would say start finding a chair or a spot when your lifter is about four out. Mm-hmm. Um, it is always helpful to move as close to the platform as is allowed by the meet organizers, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, if there's a separate walled-off warm-up area and lifting area, if they allow a couple lifters to sit out close to the platform, do that. If they don't, get a spot close to the door. Um, and then Also good to ask that during the rules meeting. Yes, it, it, it's helpful to ask that. Um, additionally, if you're taking a spot immediately close to the door, um, have your lifter sit in that spot when they're going to wrap after they wrap, I would go back to wherever your spot is originally. Don't clog up that doorway. Um, that's going to be suboptimal for yeah. everybody. Um, I would say, as a general rule of thumb, uh, this is going to depend on a couple things, but uh, I would start wrapping three lifters out, a.k.a. in the hole. Mm-hmm. When I've handled lifters on a typical meet, um, we, we would typically start wrapping them three lifters out. Because that's, that's one leg, second leg is on deck, and then you get called. You have the full minute to... Go, go get yourself a set ready. Yeah. Why might you need to adjust that? Um, how fast you as the handler wrap. Um, Calvin Seath mm-hmm. is an individual who trained with us and now is on Strongman but has wrapped knees. He was a good rapper but was very slow. So Ooh, uh, What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. Oh, what's your point? <laughs> so we would have him start more like Calvin. <laughs> we would have him start more like four out because he would wrap a, a tight knee, but was not particularly fast. Okay. Um, you also might need to adjust based on how quickly is the meat running. Mm-hmm. If it's mostly all other raw lifters and they're just boom going from one lifter to the next, you might have to you know start a little further out. Similarly, if the meat is I don't know like a seventeen hour thirty two lifter meat. Yeah. Where a lot of world records are being set, it Atlanta, might not be Atlanta running. City record breakers. It might not be running very quickly, and you might 
not want to wrap that early. You might want to, you know, postpone that until the lifter is on deck or, right. or maybe they don't even run a clock and you just start wrapping your lifter when they're up. I've seen that as well. <laughs> um, how long does it take the lifter to get ready outside of having their knees wrapped? Mm-hmm. Like, do they need extra time to psych up? Do they need extra time? I mean, we had a guy that used to train with us, Jason Visney, who took a long effing time to wrap his wrists. And so even on bench, we would have to have him start almost like he's wrapping his knees and wrap like on deck in the hole. Jesus. Because he just took so long to get his wrist wrapped. It was a mental thing. Sure, sure, um, sure. You know, how long does it take them to get their belt set and their strap set? Um, but ideally, as you said, Mr. Bain, uh, you're going to wrap one knee while they're three out, wrap the next knee while they're on deck, mm-hmm. and then when their bar is being set, where their bar is being loaded, put straps on, uh, have them get the wrist wrapped if they wear them, put chalk on their back. By the time the bar is loaded, they are ready to go. Mm-hmm. So once the bar is loaded, you don't want to be ready too far b- before that, um, but you also don't want to having them getting ready during their minute. You would rather them being walking to the platform, getting set, standing up and getting set during that minute, especially an equip lifter sometimes might need that entire minute. If they are running a strict clock, um, you know, and then after that lifters attempt, um, you know, you need to make sure from a timing perspective, if they are running that clock, which they certainly were in, in the UK, oh, yeah. uh, you need to get to the table within that one minute to give that lifter's next attempt. Mm-hmm. As a handler, I do recommend that you go give the attempt just so the lifter can focus again on lifting. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where it is helpful to have that meet record and, and some notes um, written out beforehand. Um, and additionally, the first thing you might need to do if they're an equipped lifter is get them out of the wraps, get their straps off them, yes. you know, unwrap them, unstrap them, have a quick conversation with them. If that's, you know, how they, they want to pick attempts and then immediately go to the table as a handler, um, bench and deadlift timing are much easier. I usually would have the lifter kind of start getting ready to get ready mm-hmm. when they're in the hole. Um, and then when they're on deck, that's where we're going to set shirts, on the bench where we're going to set wrist wraps, we're going to put belt on, um, deadlift. I mean, usually pretty easy. I mean, you might need to set straps on the deadlift and belt. Right. Um, if you're doing baby powder on the deadlift, you can probably do that at just about any time between their attempts. Um, you don't necessarily to me need to do that, you know, right before they get ready. If you apply baby powder correctly, which a little bit goes a long way, take the baby powder, put it on their thigh, flip the bottle over and (laughs) rub it into their thigh. You don't need to like, you know, throw baby powder on their no, whole you need, body. You need to open the top of it, just dump it all over their person. And and then put it in the chalk box. Yes, and but also make sure don't do it on the carpet because that would make no sense. Never do it on the carpet. Sorry for the convenience. Yikes. Um, yeah, and if you're from Egypt, then use an entire bottle of baby powder um, on each leg for each of your four attempts. Yes. Again, not on the carpet. Yes. Um, let's go on. Anything else on timing, Mr. Bain? No, I think, I mean, you've, you've hit kind of all of it. You know, it's, uh, timing is important. I wouldn't say it's an art as some other things are, uh, but it is important just to understand the flow of the meat. And the first time I highly recommend when it comes to learning timing, go and be a handler's handler, be the person who is kind of backing up a, a handler. If you want to do this and help out your, your teammates or friends or whomstever, you'll kind of see an experienced handler and how they figure out the timing of things. Uh, Eric is a, is a great example of that. He's a good person to watch at, at meets and how, kind of how he thinks about it. And, again, he went through that very, very well here. Yeah, I mean, and actually I think this is what Laura brought in her post. 
being a handler and thinking about these timing issues to me will make you a better lifter because 100%. you're going to understand the manner in which meets are being run much better simply by examining it in order to get your lifter ready on time. Agreed. Um, you're going to look at that score sheet. You're going to look at, you know, the way things are going and that, cause you need to know that information in order to time your lifter properly. Right. Um, well, let's move on to calling numbers. Um, now, again, this is something where, as a handler, you know, your job might be just merely to take the message from the lifter. You know, mm -hmm. that depends on the relationship you have with them. Right. It might be a conversation where you're just giving your opinion and then the lifter might make a decision. Or if you're their coach or, you know, if they just trust you enough, you might be just literally calling their numbers for them yeah. and them not even, you know, really knowing except beforehand. Um, I've done it both ways. It is as a coach slash handler, it is kind of nerve wracking to call numbers, you know, without any input from the lifter themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a lot of times when I do that, I will often have my handler handler, you yeah. know, helping me and then, you know, kind of get their input just as a double check. Um, you know, uh, and these are general rules of thumb, uh, that you would establish in training, but you know, opener is something you can triple. Um, as Mr. Bain has often said, it's something you could do hungover. I'm just saying, definitely yeah. from experience. Yeah. Um, watch warm-ups um, as a handler. If they look really bad, remember that as a rule, you have five minutes or five lifters prior to your flight starting to have one change mm -hmm. of an opener. Um, ideally, when you're choosing second attempts, that's something that is, you know, a, a meet PR or a near max attempt. So a warm-up is something lighter to get in the meet. Uh, the second attempt is something more you're counting on mm -hmm. for your total. You know, if you're somebody that could attempt a, a, a world record, um, th that second attempt is where I might, you know, just use the record-breaking chips mm -hmm. to break that record. Mm, chips. Um, third attempt to me is probably the, the one where I would go the most by feel and by look of how the lifter mm -hmm. looks. Um, but that is generally where you want to go for the, the max attempt for the day, assuming they got their previous two attempts, where you're going to go for a PR um, for the lifter that you're helping. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, you know, if they've already gotten first two attempts, at that point, even if they didn't look great, it's like, well, if I think they've got a shot, we might as well go ahead and attempt a PR. Yeah. Um, missed attempt, in my opinion, uh, should almost always be repeated, especially openers. Es especially openers. Um, I know that, you know, when you've got your shirted benchers, they say, oh, I just need more weight on the bar. Um, I, I don't, I don't recommend that. Oh, um, like the ones that have never touched before. So we'll just keep adding weight and see what happens. Yeah. Like a lifter. Did, did I tell the stone story of the guy who well, we uh, just, just had one at ABF nationals? Yeah. Well, did I tell the story where I had a guy that took 30 minutes to get his APF card and then, uh, told oh, me, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Maybe I'll save that for another week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sa save story. that one. We won't mention what brand he was wearing either, but yeah. Um, you know, some lifters might just want you to give them input and then them make the decision. Mm -hmm. um, some lifters might just say, you know, you choose my attempts. I'm just going to focus on lifting. I don't even want to know what the numbers are, yep. especially since most meets are running kilos. You know, lifters won't always know what's on the bar, and it might be better for them not to know. Um, it depends on the person. Um, you know, it does require a lot of trust for someone to totally call your numbers for you. Um, and that's something where I think it is important to communicate beforehand. What are their expectations? What are their goals? That's not to say that you might not reach those goals because of right. how they may or may not look that day. 
Um, but that is, you know, that's where, like you said, Mr. Bain, when you start to get to calling numbers, there's a little bit more art. It's not just mm-hmm. a direct science. It's right. It's based on experience. It's based on look. It's based on knowing the lifter. Um, and it's not linear. Yeah, it's not always linear, and it's something where you might not have a great day, or gosh, you might just be on fire and mm-hmm. you know call something that you'd never thought you would call. Yeah, I mean, uh, a, a great example: Lily last year at nationals. She, I mean, everything was clicking, so we just you know we went full send on everything. Uh, this year, not so much. So you know, we we kept it a little more conservative. Yeah, uh, know the rules on changing attempts. Um, you can't expect me to read the rule book. <laughs> you can only change openers on squat and bench. Um, you cannot change second or third attempt squat or bench once they've been given. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important as a handler to know the rule book. Um, you can change deadlift attempts, second attempt once, third attempt twice. And why might you need to change attempts as a handler or as a coach? Uh, and again, we could probably go into a more in-depth look into meat strategy in general. Mm-hmm. But if your lifter that you're handling is neck and neck with a competition, um, you may need to watch what that lifter is doing, and you might need to change your lifter's second and third attempt based on what they have put in and what they've projected to do, or if you're a stronger deadlifter than them, what they have already done. That's why you're always at an advantage to have a stronger deadlift in close competition. Yes. You know, w- what you don't want and why you might want to watch that and why you might want to change attempts, you don't want your lifter to lose by only two and a half kilos when, you know, it looked like they had two and a half kilos more on their deadlift. Um, if you didn't know the rule, uh, in, a, in the instance of a tie, uh, the tie would go to the lighter lifter. Mm-hmm. So that would be an instance where it would be important to know not only what that competition is doing, but what is their competition body weight and what is your lifter's competition body weight. Um, I think it was a couple weeks ago it was – Brian Carroll versus somebody else where um, at a at a WPO meet mm-hmm. where those two lifters tied, and I think it was a big iron lifter. Maybe Sean Frankel. Does that sound correct? Very maybe. Yeah. I think I can listen to the episode. Yeah. I, I, I do remember that uh, the lifter won on a tie um, based on body weight. So, you know, the, and, and I suspect it was the big iron lifter that won because Rick Hussey was – He was an expert on calling numbers. He Mm -hmm. just had kind of that innate sense watching a lifter and knowing what they could do on that day and getting the most out of them. And uh, I suspect it was he went for the tie knowing that he would win on body weight. Um, And know that also when you're changing attempts, you can't take the bar below what the current bar weight is. You can't, you know, go out of the round system. And then you cannot change the attempt once your lifter's bar has been called loaded. But sans that, you can raise a weight, you can lower a weight. It can change the order. Um, and I have definitely had instances when I've been coaching my lifter, Dave Burston, mm-hmm. where he's had some close competition where lifters and him were neck and neck. Um, I remember specifically in England when he had a lifter that was fairly close with him. And I believe what had happened was – if the lifter he was facing had gotten his third deadlift, we were going to have to raise David's third deadlift in order to go for the win. He missed his deadlift, so I think at that point, whatever we chose was fine um, for the win. And that would be in sense where you know going for the win and strategy does have an impact when you have direct competition. For sure. And what's interesting is I've really never had to deal with that. So it's one of those where like it, it's, I've just had to watch it from afar. 
Anything to add when it comes to you calling numbers, Mr. Bain? Uh, the one thing I will say is be honest with yourself. And I'm probably one of the worst at this where it's like I just know, you know, hey, it'll always be there on me day. Be very honest. You know, look at your training. Look at your warm-ups. You know, if it's not going to be there, adjust. It, there's literally nothing wrong with that. Yeah, take what the day gives you. But, you know, like you said, sometimes things are clicking. And obviously that's a great problem to have. Um and when you get into gear, Mr. Ban, you realize that, hey, if it's if it's not there on meet day, that's when, you know, the adjustments of gear start to become very, very important. Um, so let's go on to gear as a handler. What do you need to know when it is for, uh, you know, setting gear, getting a lifter into gear? And what do you need to do there? Um, you know, the first we talked about it, you need to know how the lifter that you're helping likes their knee wraps. Um it is a good idea to have a backup pair of knee wraps if possible because if you, if especially if you pre-wrap the, the wraps mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you lose that wrap, if you've got another one ready to go, um, you know, you, you're not going to lose any time. You don't have to re-wrap that wrap right. you know, before trying to re-wrap the lifter's knee. Uh, you know, know how tight the lifter likes their gear and where they like it set. You know, adjustments like... Uh, you know, do they like looser knee wraps on openers and then tighter on subsequent attempts, which I say is pretty common. Mm-hmm. Um, usually Jen Gimmel says, you know, I've got like an opener wrap for her, like a, a second attempt, like a world record wrap. And then maybe the tightest is, you know, you missed your opener and you don't look very good. Right. Second <laughs> attempt wrap. Just crank, crank the sucker on. Um, you know, you might need to adjust the squat suit when it comes to like a Leviathan Ultra Pro. You might need to put it on and then take a warm-up, and then tighten it. Sometimes, some, I've seen lifters even adjust that LUP between attempts. Uh, the bench shirt, especially if you're wearing an open back bench shirt, you might need to know where you need to set the collar for attempts. We talked a number of weeks ago about mm-hmm. uh, who was the lifter that had... Oh, I just started falling. Chad Ikes. Chad Ikes, yes. Chad Ikes that had literally had tattooed marks on his chest to indicate where he wanted his shirt pulled down for his attempts. That is commitment. Uh, know how tight they like their straps on their suit on squat and deadlift, assuming Velcro straps. Again, you may need to go tighter on subsequent attempts. A, a caveat I would add on on straps is that you definitely can go too tight mm-hmm. and remind the lifter that they do need to have an upright body position when setting straps and that if they want the straps tighter to lean forward into the strap, if they want it a little bit looser, to lean back. That's oh. an old Ernie Franz trick. Would definitely recommend folks listening to this, rewind and re-listen to that, because that is very important. I've seen folks set those straps poorly, and I end up catching them very shortly thereafter. Uh, I mean, you can, like, I would say you almost, if you can, as tight as you can handle it, you almost can't go too tight on knee wraps. Like, as long as you've been accustomed to it, mm-hmm. you almost can't wrap knees too tight. You can a hundred percent go too tight when it comes to the LUP suit. You can, and you can a thousand percent go too tight on straps, especially if you have a lifter that has you tighten their straps when they're not in an upright body position. Well, now they can't even get their shoulders and their upper back set to squat or deadlift. Right. Um, you know, be aware of I. Uh, I said quote meet specific items. You know, rules items like the fact that you have to tie and tuck laces for the Leviathan Ultra Pro. They cannot be touching the ground or be loose. 
right. It needs to look nice and clean. The fact that you do need to obviously wear a singlet on the bench, which is typically something we don't do in training unless you're on Team Lillibridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you're, you're going to have to tuck that bench shirt in. Um, that's something we don't even do that much here, but we have done where there's probably some logic to wearing your singlet um, and your bench shirt to, to practice how to set that bench shirt when it's under uh, you know, a, a, yeah. a stretchy singlet because it is a little bit different to set and it's a little bit different feel. Um, you know, no things like that your socks can't touch your knee wraps or your, your knee sleeves on mm-hmm. the squat or the deadlift for that matter. Right. Um, those are things that you need to know as a handler. So, again, important to know the rule book. Um, you can't expect me to read that. <laughs> Why do you keep bringing this up? Um, know what a types lifter. of adjustments the lifters may need when they're actually setting up on the platform. Things like some lifters will need you to hold the straps on their squat suit down as they're setting up under the bar. Right. Some lifters actually might need a push so that they can yep. physically get under the bar when they're setting up on the squat. Mm-hmm. Um, some lifters, uh, may need to make sure that they're actually under the bar, meaning like, are their feet set under the bar as opposed to too far forward or what's more likely too far back, right? Or do they set up with their hips too far behind the bar on the squat because of that tight pressure of the wraps in the suit? You may need to remind the lifters, get your hips under the bar prior to standing up. Um, you might need to actually physically push their hands out when setting up in a shirted bench. Um, something I don't see as much, but used to be really popular is lifters putting their thumbs or, or hands on lifters traps mm-hmm. as they set up in order to set their shoulders when they're setting up in a shirted bench. Um, do they like their belt pulled down when they set up on uh, a, a shirted bench? Also important to know, what's the rule on pulling the belt down? Yeah, well, you know, to be fair there, Mr. Bain, I, I, there's no rule on that pers- specifically. I think that's kind of an interpretation. I've seen it uh, interpreted both ways by sometimes the same crew. Nice. Um, but no, uh, does the lifter like their belt pulled down? How far? Like, I'm one that don't touch my belt. I have it mm-hmm. exactly where I want it. Don't touch my fucking belt when I'm setting up to bench. <laughs> Versus other people... Uh, you know, Stace Mula, she wants that belt pulled way effing down. Sure. My wife, Jackie, she wants just a slight push down. Um, those are those little idiosyncrasies that are, are difficult to know without, you know, working with the lifter. Um, looking at foot position on a bench, you might have to remind the lifter to get their feet underneath them so their butt don't come up. Right. And if your lifter has a problem with their butt coming up, have a cue that isn't keep your butt down. Yeah, because, that's terrible. Because if you say that, the side judges are 100% going to look extra, extra, extra close to and make sure their, it, their butt is down. All it takes is one little ray of daylight. Poof, red light. And, and so uh, I, I, this is not a cue that works for us, but I know Greg Damaga will give his wife the cue of knees out mm-hmm. um, because she sets up with her feet more out in front of her rather than underneath her. And when you set up with that wide out in front foot position, you do want to push your knees out like a squat. So he'll remind Debbie with the cue knees out. And then at her mind, that means, yes, push my knees out, but also remind her to keep her butt down. Right. Let me touch on a similar topic. Um, If your lifter has you calling their depth, um, first of all, as a lifter, you have to make sure you wait for them to say up. Because if, if your handler is calling you down, 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 and you just come up prior to hearing up, the side judges are probably going to assume, unless there's insurmountable 
evidence to the contrary that you're not at depth. They're right. just going to assume the handler is, you know, on the same page. And so if, as a handler, if you see a lifter start to come up before you say up, immediately start saying up and sell it like that's exactly yep. when you want them to come up. Sell the shit. Most of the time, if they cut it high, it's still going to get red-lighted. But as a handler, you know, don't just be silent. Like, start yelling up. Yes. <laughs> um, and definitely don't say, God damn it. Yeah. And that, that's true if you're a lifter <laughs> as well. Like, don't start shaking your head. Don't assume the judge just saw anything. Complete the lift and assume that it's a legal lift until you see red lights. Play to the whistle. Yeah, it, uh, exactly. A great analogy. Um, you know, and again, all this setting of gear, it, it, it's going to be very individual to the lifter themselves. And that's where it is, I would say it is important to train with them. And if you don't train with them, that's where communication is going to be really, really important. I have had lifters at meets that I've, I've ended up helping just because I didn't have anybody. And that's where, you know, you're going to have to ask them, like, you know, how do you like your bench handoff? Is it one, two, take a breath? Is it one, two, three? Is mm-hmm. it I blink my eyes twice and take a breath? Yeah. Everybody's got something different there. And you're what, going what's to. What's yours? One, two, three. Yeah, mine's just a big breath. Yeah, I, my, I keep it very simple. One, two, three. Yeah, you do the big breath, which, you know, whatever. It, it doesn't really matter. It's just. Tell them. Communicate. Yeah, you have to communicate them as a handler. Proactively communicate. Um. Miscellaneous items. Uh, this is where you kind of need to know the personality of the lifter that you're helping. Mm-hmm. You know, like my buddy Samok, does he sometimes forget to eat and drink during the meet, and then, or just randomly throughout the training cycle? Uh, does for days on end? Does he miss an opening bench at a meet that he's done in training like a like so many times because he literally his blood sugar is starting to drop? We love you, Samok, but seriously, dude, eat yeah. something. I literally had Jackie go out and buy extra Gatorades for him and Timor and just gave them to them and said, make sure you just keep sipping Gatorade yes. all day long so yes. they stayed hydrated because they were, they were so freaking hyped up. Um, we, we just, seriously, just for like a week, if we go to like a big meet, just have them hang out with me. They will never not eat. Does the lifter like to pace around and waste energy? If they do, tell them to sit the fuck down. Yes. Also, Timor, Samok, Marissa, <laughs> Minion Crew. The Minion Crew. Uh, versus Lily, who just like as soon as the lifting is done, boom, she's on her phone, curled up on a chair. You yeah. cannot fuck like she hides. You can't find her. Yep. Um, and, and also important to to know always know where your lifter is. Sometimes lifter will just disappear and be like, no, like you go also and looking at you, Lily Bane. You go and just sit down right where I know where you are. Yes. Uh, and, and the same token. I would say as the handler, it's important to be present with your lifter all day. Don't be around bullshitting all the time with lifters you know from the meet just because you know them. Uh, a former uh, partner here at 2XL was a terrible handler for that reason because whenever I needed him, he was nowhere to be found. He was fine at wrapping knees, setting shirts, setting suits. If he was there. Uh, but I, it was like I had to find him every time I needed him. And sometimes just like... Just for their, like, peace of mind, like, just being nearby, even if you're not talking, you're not doing anything, like, being nearby and them knowing where you are helps, you know, bring their anxiety level down. Because sure. l- let's be honest, like, lifting in a meet is can be nerve-wracking, yeah. like, positively and negatively. So it, it's helpful to be that presence there with and, them. And I will say especially, like, if you're handling a spouse, a, a child or, or whatever, like, extra important to just be there, be present. Definitely. 
you may need to go and run errands during the day. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it would probably be better if you could do that beforehand, like go shopping with them or like go shopping for them. Um, you know, know what they need for the day and have that. Uh, but we've, if not, we've actually talked about this during your getting ready for your first meet. Yeah, exactly. But you may need to go run errands, get them food, get them drinks, et cetera, et cetera. Try to do that not when the lifter is needing to warm up or lifting. Um, and, and then you need to be the person that always goes and checks, like how is the meat running? You know, uh, even when you're not need to be warming up, look how the timing is going. Um, during like find out, go and ask. Don't assume, and don't assume what you hear in the warm up area. Mm-hmm. Go ask the f- table. How long of a break are you taking between attempts? They might not even thought about it because when you're running the meet, you just kind of get in the in the, yeah, in, the, the gro- in the groove of running, and you know the person at the table may not be the meet director; they might just be the announcer and scorer, mm-hmm. and so they may need to check with the meet director. Hey, how long of a break are we going to take? Yeah. Sometimes um, clarify: Are we going to be on Chicago time or Florida time? Yeah, and I and I love all you Florida lifters, and I, it, just in general in the South, like things just run just a just a tick slower. Like when you go south of the Mason-Dixon line? Yeah, it's it's a little more, it's laid back. It it is. I mean, truly. And so I always assume when I go to a meet in the south of the Mason-Dixon line that like a a 15-minute break is more like 20. And and here's the thing. That's okay. We're just having fun with it. Yeah, we are having fun with Florida time. Yeah. Um, We're we're just assholes up here that are so uptight. You know, we're... Yeah, we just keep pounding. You know what's funny is that they used to start, always Florida meets, always used to start at 10 a.m. Up until like even five years ago. And I was like... Why are we starting at 10 a.m.? And that's just well, you gotta get the spotters loaders out of chill. Uh, that's just that's, <laughs> that's just what they did in Florida. Um, Florida man. Uh, if you're handling more than one lifter, it's definitely important to have helpers. I would say each person should have at least one person that's with them. So if you're helping a couple people, make sure you're with one person all the time. You're helping the other, and they have somebody right. to help them. Um, it might you might need to have one coach and one pure handler, or you might need one primary handler and one helper to mm-hmm. the handler. Um, and you know if there is one, uh, or if there's more than one handler or coach, I would say from a cueing and a coaching perspective, make sure that one person is the voice. Like yep. not that the other person can't cheer and give cues. But know who the primary person is that's going to be giving those cues, that's going to be calling depth. Make sure that you and the other person, if there's multiple handlers, have communicated that. Who is calling depth? Who, you know, who is doing what job so that everyone is on the same page? Yep. Um, and I would say let the lifter decide that more than anybody else because they're meat. Um, know the psychology of what type of motivation the lifter needs. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, uh, I think a, it was called a psychology of coaching class in, in college. And there's an, a quote, optimum level of arousal. Like there's an optimum level of being up. Yes. And most of the time, like football players are notorious for just being too fucking hyped up. Mm-hmm. And like most of the time, they don't need a rah-rah speech. They need a, hey, let's get focused know where your you know know your foot placement know where your hands are supposed to be let's go out there and execute they don't need to be brought further up in fact they probably need to be brought down um, versus other sports other and, and it's going to depend on the individual they might be you know a little bit too chill and they might need that little bit of oomph to get them up and focused for the day um, you know i would say most of the time more lifters are more likely to get too up and, and they need to be calmed down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are times, I think, 
specific to the deadlift because it's there's no eccentric portion. It's just pick up the bar. Yep. I would say the deadlift is the one where you might need to fire the lifter up a little bit more. If only you had someone on the platform who could assist with that. <laughs> what, what what can we do? Uh, you know, I would say you always should be the calm person as the handler. Be the voice of reason. Be the voice of reassurance. Even if you don't believe what you're saying, and I'm not saying lie to the lifter, but sometimes you just need to be the person to put the positive spin we, on things. We don't lie. We just believe in valid truths. <laughs> you know, if we're a lifter, we're the government. <laughs> if a lifter misses a lift, you can't inundate them with 20,000 cues and technique corrections. Focus on one or two things that you think could improve the lift and make it better in the next lift. Uh, by, I would, by the way, most of the time, it's probably just be tighter. Plausibly, um, Steve Schaefer is a guy who does our meets from Illinois here, mm -hmm. and he was at Nationals, and I saw him miss his second squat because he was high, and he was high. Yep, he was. But his chest was way, way forward. Like I mean, it was basically a good morning. And actually, I think that was his opener. And yeah, I basically pushed his butt back into me. Right. I mean, it was way bent over. And he, I could tell he was very, very hyped up, mm -hmm. way too hyped up. And I'm not his coach, but I saw him, Mrs. Mrs. Opener, and I said to him, you know, Steve, you need to keep your chest up. You drop your hips into it, get tighter, you know, case in point, but get a little bit tighter, keep your chest up, and you'll be able to get the next one. And the next one, I wouldn't say his form was perfect, but he definitely kept his chest up more. He did. He sunk more at his hips, and he got his second attempt. Mm -hmm. You can't – at that time, I'm not Steve's coach, of course. I can't change his form. I might be able to adjust, tweak one or two things to basically make it a legal lift and, and yeah. keep him and, in the meet. And that's all you're trying to do, to try to help the guy. He does our meets. You know, I would yeah. consider us all friendly. I love definitely. Steve. Steve's dope. Yeah, uh, great guy. But yeah, so I, I, it sends was, me lots of emails. Yeah, he sends me lots of emails on the Lombard meet. He's he's I, I really do like Steve. He's one of those that comes up. He always has a nice thing to say to me, and he's like, "You're you're the one who makes the meets." I'm like, actually, you're the one lifting, so you definitely like him, sir. Yeah. So those are things that you, you kind of need to think about. Is uh, you know you, you can't go over the top with that type of thing, and you need to know that the personality of the person, like Lily Bain, seems like maybe she's the one that maybe needs to be. I don't know. You tell me. Focused more? She doesn't seem, like, too hyped up, but maybe it's all internal. No, so, yeah. So, so with Lily, like, you know, so if we look at the, the different psychologies, right, there's certain individuals that I know I can go full on and just let it rip when it comes to the, the, the hype. With Lily, it's a little different. And part of it is because, I'm you know, I'm her dad. and, and Yeah, that definitely adds another element. Yeah. And so for her, it is – it's always a very – it's very stern, but it's very uh, low-key where it's – you know, right. I'm whispering sense. in her ear, and it's, listen, You know, I can tell you all some of the things I say specifically. Like, you're Lily motherfucking Bane. Show everybody who the hell you are right now. That's the type of stuff that, like, gets her from, to your point, the, you know, sullen teenager, very low to, oh, it is time to perform now. Right, and, right, right. And then, you know, she she does like, and, and we've talked about this, like, she doesn't want me to go full hype guy. But she does like the whole, like, you know, deep booming, the Lily Bane. Like, that, like, for her is kind of where she flips the switch. Sure. Um, versus, like, you know, I think uh, our boy Timor, mm -hmm. um, who's already, like, super hyped up. Yeah. I think when he went out for uh, a 300-pound bench attempt mm -hmm. on his third attempt, I, I, I could tell he just – he got too hyped up. He was up. so amped. He was so amped. It's like he didn't – and he may not have had it anyway. I mean, it, it was going to be close either way because his second attempt, which was a PR – 
I think 280 mm-hmm. uh, was not easy, but I figured eh, it was it was yeah, fucking it send it. Looked enough that you know he'd already set the record. Let's mm-hmm. go ahead and try 300. And he's but only got to go about it like, three quarters of an inch. <laughs> right, so. exactly. He's got such a small range of motion. <laughs> he's gonna be great when we get him on a bench shirt. Oh, but yeah. it, he just he changed the way he set up because he was a little too amped up. Mm-hmm. There is a, you do you definitely want to be you know uh, Stu McGill talks about you want to lift a little bit angry. You want to be. Ugh. You want to have a little bit of fire in your belly, yeah. but there is a point where you have too much, and it it downturns the focus and the technique and the execution that you need. Yep. Just don't fuck it up. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, anything, anything else to add, Mr. Bain? There's a lot. I mean, obviously a lot of content here that we went through as far as what goes into handling a lifter. At the end of the day, you're their person. You're their piece. They're, you're, the, you're the one that they have asked or, or you guys have decided, like you people have decided – you're going to be with them. Just know that. And and know that no matter what, you know, even if somebody bombs, like both of you can learn things that day. Yeah. And I think it's very important. So always take the lessons from the day. And one of the biggest things I, I would highly encourage is every, especially every successful attempt, continue to reassure them. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, well done. Awesome. It wasn't perfect, but you're in. You know, especially we get that opening squat. Awesome. We're in the meet. You get that opening bench, great. You've earned the right to pull. Now let's have some fun. It's all those different things. And then once you get that first deadlift, it's like, awesome. You have a total. Now is where the fun really starts. And just continue to kind of like, that's a great way to keep somebody not super amped, but just like, hey, listen, we're yeah, still on. Be their cheerleader. On. Be their reassurance. Yep. We're, be, we're, the, be the calm but encouraging voice. Yes. Yes. Be, um, and it's not about being rah-rah necessarily. It's about just. Be the rock. Yeah. Exactly. That's a, that's a great uh, that's a great way to, to put it, be the rock for them. And that's what I try to be. And I, I, I'm not generally like a, a high, high or a low, low person in general. So I think that's why I can, I can be a fairly good handler for lifters, mm-hmm. but I try to keep that calm demeanor throughout with lifters and just be the voice of reason and be the voice of, Hey, you, you've done this in training. You know what you can do, especially when lifters have a struggle in the meet, when they miss an attempt, it's important to be that voice in their head mm-hmm. that the next time they go up to lift, they can't have fear. They can't be thinking, well, I think I'm going to miss that. They need that confidence, especially if it is just a technical error. It's a depth issue. It's, you know, a, a setting of equipment issue. You missed that, a command. Uh, yeah, geez. That's just. Yep. That's happened to my lifters not that often, but I, I hope just, that we, we try to practice that so that doesn't happen. Yeah, just remember, er- Eric's an asshole, but he handles a good meat. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Bain, um, I would say that's probably all we got for the day. Yeah. Um, next week, uh, I think we've got some interviews on the way. We do. Um, I'm thinking about my next historical episode. Um, we've talked about it in a number of different episodes, mm-hmm. but maybe now as I've I've started to dive back in some of these powerlifting essays, maybe take pieces from some of our other episodes, and we could maybe go a full on you know, the founding of the APF episode. Yeah. Um, it, it's a longer-term one, kind of like our uh, USAPL uh, IPF affiliation episode. That that would take a lot of research. Um, yeah, but you know, it's in, it's in the vein of the, the tribute to Ernie Franz and just continuing the, the Franz legacy. Definitely, and that, that was definitely an Ernie Franz-led, um, you know, uh, break-off. And, yeah, yeah, initiative is a great way to put it. Um, you know, I've had a couple people suggest to me that – uh, maybe outside of the episodes, I could record like a, a 20, 30-minute stone rant on issues because I guess everybody likes to just listen to me rant. That doesn't always fit in the context of 
uh, a full episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a nice rant in my head uh, that we talked about last week on age coefficient and best <laughs> and best left rewards that sure. I, I could break down. Um, but I don't think it's quite the length of the full episode. And then I um, believe we're going to do a because I, I posted this on the IG, but a uh, how-to video on how to spot and platform manage. Sure for, sure, for the YouTube channel, even though we haven't really been super active on that, but I think that'll be a fun, uh, fun thing to do, given that I, I am pulling back on the number of meats that I uh, that I. But work. not pulling out. I don't know what that means. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, leave us uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, you can't do it on Spotify. Uh, I guess you can't do that on Spotify. Mm-hmm. Um, leave us feedback um, on our Instagram account or, or shoot us a DM. Yeah, and e- either one of our DMs. Yeah, and if you uh, would like to support the show uh, and support 2XL Powerlift, you can check out the link tree in our bio to our merch store. And yeah. we love it when we see uh, pictures of you wearing our Strength and Anger gear yeah. um, or the Lombard well, meat gear. Um, nobody cares about soccer. Or the Midwest side uh, shirts. Yeah. Definitely uh, take pictures of that, and we will we will repost that, um, especially if it's a story because that's easy to repost. Yeah, this, tag us in it, and we will, uh, we will get it out there to the people. And uh, with that, Mr. Bain, this is Eric Stone signing out. Strength and anger. Ferret, do you have any updates on your opinion on AAPF Nationals? Squeeze. <laughs>